Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, uh, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on, no, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and streaming. Uh, no. Here. No, okay. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll count you in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming. It's time for episode 10, the actual episode 10. Not the, oh, wait. No, yeah, this is episode 10. We've had a few. Yeah, this is episode 10. We've had a few I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors, Chris, by announcing the episode number at the top of each episode. <laughs> Given our track res- record for losing things and things coming in out of order, yeah. I think we'd be, I think we'd do better just to. Just to begin and let the episode fall where it may. Or, hear me out, we start by saying, hey everybody, welcome to episode, and then we'll just have Siri fill it in on each episode, as needed. <laughs> so we just say, welcome to episode, and then in post-production we have ten. <laughs> Should just be... Hey guys, welcome to another rousing episode <laughs> fifteen. Siri. Well, <laughs> whatever episode number this ends up being, we're back! And we're... We are. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about... Some exciting flicks starring uh, strong female uh, leads, I would say. Oh boy, we'll dive into the reductivism right away. <laughs> no, we can, yeah, we should title. Here we go. So title the episode that, and we'll get people coming in angry from both sides right away. <laughs> yeah, strong. Yeah, exactly. Strong female leads. Strong female leads, and the men who write them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so to hit the ground running here, we, I, I was interested in the, uh, the Netflix original film that had recently come out called Enola Holmes, starring Millie Bobby Brown of Stranger Things fame. And, uh, yeah, I, I was just, I was curious about it cause it looked, it looked kind of spunky and peppy and, and it was an inter- interesting take on the whole Sherlock mythos. So I, I thought I'd assign that to Bo. I, I, I gave it to you, Bo, on a silver platter, the, the Enola Holmes film. And when you gave it to me, Chris, I took it. And uh, having taken it, I watched it. That's all I wanted and to hear. That's what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> um, good, 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 good. Things can proceed as expected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so here we are, our first film of of the episode, Enola Holmes. Yeah, Enola Holmes is the the new Netflix film, as you say. Uh, another one. We've been doing a couple recently that are just fresh out of the i was gonna say film can't no um that are fresh <laughs> fresh and fresh off the vine and uh yeah th- this one uh was released um just uh, a few weeks ago enola holmes um so it's based on the first of a series of young adult mystery novels that imagine a younger sister to the famed sherlock holmes in the movie we meet Enola, who, yes, is played by Millie Bobby Brown, and she's bold, intelligent, a bit of a maverick, and right away that we sh- we see that she spends her days in this sort of rigorous homeschooling intensive, 
uh, with her mother, educating her in basically anything, every anything and everything imaginable, from mathematics to jujitsu, uh, tennis, languages, just uh, an intensive, like I say. And, and then suddenly, uh, her mother disappears without explanation, mm-hmm. and in all his life is thrown into chaos. Her older brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock, show up to help sort everything. And because Mycroft, the eldest, is determined to civilize her in a stuffy boarding school, she does a runner and ends up on her own in London, trying to find her mother. And all of this is interwoven with a convoluted mystery concerning a young boy she's met, who is also on the run, and the women's suffrage movement, which is uh, at a which is about to reach a a very decisive vote in Parliament. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the 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 premise, mm-hmm. and from there it's I mean I mentioned convoluted and it really is um, a sort of sprawling adventure that dives in and out of various threads. Yeah, very various threads <laughs> in in giving us what we have, and and I think the the first thing to mention I mean. Right off the bat, we see that this this is a yeah movie that, like you were saying, is full of sort of spunk and pep. Uh, Enola addresses the camera quite frequently, breaking the fourth wall, uh, talking to the to the audience mm-hmm. in the style of I mean, obviously something that is of Shakespeare tradition. But but Chris, have you ever seen the movie Alfie? Uh, it was. One of the films that gave Michael Caine his it was a, a star making movie for him. Oh right, yeah, I movie know. Movie from the '60s. I know of it, but I've never actually seen it myself. But I do know he he has some little soliloquies in that movie, doesn't he? Yeah, he he does a lot of soliloquies. I think it that the the soliloquizing he does in that film is most like the way that in which he addresses the audience is is the closest I can think of to to this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's not something that either film invented addressing the audience. Mm-hmm. But um, his style of asides for humor, um, occasionally people in the, in the film itself sort of hearing what he's saying, but no one else acknowledging the audience or the strangeness of what he's doing mm. uh, is sort of part and parcel with this. And I think as well, key to... To both is is the way that um, it's in sort of a conspiratorial vein. You know, uh-huh. there's a bit of. I mean, you know, at some point she even turns and winks at us. You know, and it's all sort of yeah. Come with me, like here I am. Come with me on this little thing, and and we'll be in we'll be in in cahoots together as we undergo this adventure. And so we see that right away. And the the opening. Titles even are full of lots of, you know, sort of uh, collage art. And we see that this isn't, you know, this certainly isn't a typical take on a Victorian detective story or or the Sherlock Holmes universe or any of that. This ain't your grandma's Sherlock. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure they'd be overjoyed to hear me say that. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the the tone of the thing. Um, And it is very much... Uh, it becomes apparent, especially as it goes along, that this is very much a, a a young adult adventure story. Yeah, I mean the the audience, the 
the manner in which the politics are expressed, the intricacies of the the plot, the things which are and are not addressed, uh, to me make it abundantly clear that this is this is a fun a, a fun driven movie that is targeted toward the younger teenage set. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the reasons I feel. I I mean, after having seen it and realizing after the fact that this is kind of meant for the younger crowd, I almost feel bad giving it any sort of critique. I feel like I'm walking onto a children's playground and pointing at the kids and being like, you're playing that, you're kicking that ball wrong, kid. You know, like, (laughs) sir, please leave. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. But I, I mean, I do think that these films, you know, I don't think a movie is immune to criticism. Let me put it this way. I think, you know, I think of some of the the great critics, even just taking the most popular, Roger Ebert. And, you know, he, he was certainly able to, I think, provide valid criticism for movies to which he was not the intended audience. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And... Um, he d- he tended to do a pretty good job too, slipping into the role of the audience it was meant for. Exactly. And so if the greatest... Uh, one of the greatest and most popular movie critics of all time and a Pulitzer Prize winner can do it, then why can't we? <laughs> That's easy. And with equal aplomb. <laughs> I, I think what we're latching onto is that this film has, um, I mean, it's it has this fun and this whimsy, but it doesn't have, I mean, it certainly doesn't have the, um, that Pixar, that special Pixar thing that, yeah, that you know, in the in those early Pixar films, was that perfect mixture of the secret sauce, that universality of it? Yeah, pleasing, ple- yeah, exactly, pleasing, um, being so broad that children and adults could come in, and yet um, with enough heart and individuality in the proper places that there was a lot there to take away no matter your age well and it's interesting because i kept forgetting that this was a pg-13 film which you know when you're in that realm you know it's i mean the dark knight is pg-13 so it's there's a there's quite a bit that kind of mingles in that in that area but the funny thing is it's pg-13 almost exclusively for one scene because it's pg-13 for some violence and it's a, a moment towards the end of the film, which we may or may not get into, where a character suffers a particularly up, up unsettlingly violent demise. And uh, it's just, it's the rest of the movie is this spunky little PG kids adventure of like, ha we. And then it, at one point, a person's basically a person's head gets bashed in. So it's kind of like, whoa, slow your roll there, Enola. This is a, this is a kid's movie. Did you forget? Um, but no, yeah, it's. I do think that being a movie intended for kids does not exempt it from criticism. Like, you know, like what Ebert says or how Ebert does, we can try to critique it from the perspective of, of, you know, a teenager with slightly higher standards. (laughs) Well, you mentioned, um, you know, comparing it to Alfie a bit with the, that soliloquy, that, that talking to the camera, a little inner monologue thing. And I wanted to talk about it a bit, just ever so briefly, because, uh, it was clearly an obvious stylistic choice to have her kind of breaking it down for the audience, which um, for me, at least, unless it's used in a really clever and interesting and fun way, I tend to find it a little bit grating and patronizing. Um, specifically, uh, 
you know, there's that there's that old cliche. Dan Harmon talks about this a lot where, you know, we come in on something and you hear a little record scratch. Yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how I ended up here. You know, it's and it's kind of like, all right, let's get, let's get to the actual story now, please. I'm I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. <laughs> um, there's like the first one of her first lines is the first thing you should know is that my mother named me Enola. I'm just like, I, I don't know. I feel weird complaining about it because obviously it's a stylistic thing. They want to kind of break it all down like that. But a lot I feel like a lot of her little inner monologues don't add enough to the movie to be to be worth having. I feel like a lot of the details that we get from that would have been more interesting to just watch played out organically. Um, But there was a, so you mentioned in Alfie, there were characters who react to what he's saying to the audience, but not necessarily to the audience itself. No, not, not really. Um, But just there's a little, there's a hint of it there and we get a hint of it in, I mean, there's one moment, I think it's when they've, it's, it's when Enola has, absconded a motor car of sorts uh-huh. and she's taking off in it with someone and she's shouting something to us to the audience yeah we need to go to Bazaweather. what an injustice has occurred it's time to right some wrongs that's the only moment we get of a a quick second, the only one I can remember where we get a quick second of the soliloquy sort of being noticed. There's actually... Are there more? Yeah, there was actually one other moment that I thought was uh. strange where it's when she's getting, she's kind of bought her way into that, uh, that the clothing store. That uh, the uh, There's that, that old lady who tells her that she's too dirty or whatever, and then she shows her her money, and then the lady seems completely blown away by the fact that this kid has money. And she's she's getting dressed, and then she takes like a fake ponytail, I guess? Uh, I don't remember. I don't think. I don't think she cut off her own because I was confused about that. She has a ponytail, just like a like a disembodied braid, and then she drapes it over her lips like a mustache. You have to go to school, Enola. But I don't want to go to a finishing school, Mycroft. Well, what else are we going to do with you? You're a girl. And then while she's doing that, we see the lady peek around the corner with this confused look on her face, like what's going on over there? But she's ta- she's speaking into the camera while she's doing it. So that was. That was just a moment uh, where I was like, is she crazy? Like, <laughs> is everybody? But again, you know, stylistic thing, I guess. It's like a little little wink and a nod to the to the audience to be like, uh, is she just talking to you or is she she is she talking to everybody? Um, it's part of the. Uh, and I think those are the ones that make the most sense. Right. I mean, yeah, it, often there I mean, there are ways to bring to bring in exposition and plot and that can be done in a stylized or even tongue in cheek way but in this one we we get moments of that and then some of it is just a way of again making things a little bit sort of conspiratorial you know yeah, yeah. literally turning at the camera to wink or to to shrug and say like you know to add a joke or something yeah. rather than just telling us a piece of the the plot that we may have forgotten. Yeah. Um, and maybe I, I, in in the plot, before we get... I mean, it, it is sort of a um, a plot that's rather sprawling in its way. Uh-huh. And so I, I want to take a moment, and uh, there's an interview with Harry Bradbeer, the, the director, mm. who most of his credits seem to come from popular TV series, and he's a... Um, a, a lauded director in that realm. Mm. And in this interview, he, he talks a little bit about his motivation for the story and, and what drew him to it. And I think 
that can kind of give us our bearings to discuss what happens in this story. Yeah, yeah. So he says... Well, I always want to subvert a genre, I guess. So this is kind of his motivation going in. And I felt I could take that sort of eccentric... And I, what I felt like I was going towards was an eccentric feminist adventure that would feel like any other, wouldn't feel like any other family film. One that has a girl at the center, not a boy, as it so often is. And then he, he talks about also, he goes on to mention his love of the, the whole Sherlock mythos. Mm-hmm. And then he says... It was, there, it was going to be fun, but also at the heart of it, there was an emotional issue about a, a mother-daughter relationship and a very savage problem with a mother abandoning her child. But there was also uh, politics. Uh, the Great Reform Act, not the, um, sorry, the, uh, the what was actually the Third Reform Act um, of 1884. And I thought, well, in a year where we're going to be issuing some important votes, maybe this is relevant. So the reason I bring up this this clip or this interview is to say, this is a lot that he's trying to, that he's trying to pack in here. So he's going, like he says, for an eccentric feminist adventure that he wants to do in a subverted genre way. Um, so not only I think that there's a girl at the center, and it's true that um, we get a girl who is much more in the vein of like a, you know, she's she's more of a a, a Tom Sawyer, yeah, and less of an Anne of Green Gables, mm-hmm. you know, as we're looking at the the types of of women in sort of young adult adventures, yeah, yeah, or fiction. Um, but then here, and this is where I think the movie becomes complicated in ways that are difficult for me to, well, it, when it becomes, instead of just complex, complicated. And that's, um, you know, this emotional issue about the mother-daughter relationship and what he describes as a very savage problem with a mother abandoning her child and then segueing into all these politics. Yeah, yeah. And this is where I do feel like we've taken this this story of... Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes' younger sister, mm-hmm. and she's going to be this. I spoke with someone who has read the novels mm-hmm. and talked and asked them, you know, about how how the how the novels bear out and kind of what the differences are. And what I grasped is that much of the sort of intensity and the and aspects of the violence and a lot of what we would call the action of this story is sort of added in for the movie. Yeah. And what's really at the at the heart of the series is essentially bringing us a young girl, slightly younger than she's presented in the movie, who is the sister of Sherlock Holmes and is able to go around solving her own little mysteries in London. Mm-hmm. So she's they're sort of classic detective stories where she goes around and she Apparently, it's an expressed point in the story, which is interesting, considering how many times changing clothes is a plot point in this story. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's an expressed, it's an expressed rule of Enola in the books that she does not dress like a boy. Oh, so interesting. Whatever that's worth. That's that's a they made a, a very marked departure from that in they did in the movie more than once. Anyway, so she in the in the books is apparently this young detective character who sometimes interacts with Sherlock, like sometimes their paths cross as they're working on different cases, and sometimes her her path crosses with Mycroft, who has this sort of 
fatherly tendency toward her, trying to guide her to certain places that maybe she doesn't mm-hmm. want to go. And that's the way it's set up there. And the crucially, the the mother who goes off in the first film, I mean, in the first book, like she does in this in this movie, mm-hmm. is not seen again. So we don't get any moments of reuniting like we like we end up getting in the film. Uh. And what I find interesting is the way that he's talking about this a very savage problem. I felt and you know chime in Chris, yeah. but I felt that that the that was never really addressed properly to me. To the extent that I don't even now having watched it through one time and then gone through and watched you know the interviews and various segments again as I was preparing for the the episode uh-huh. I'm still not even clear what she was doing or why the mother <laughs> I don't really understand her plot I I it seems in a troubling way like she's almost a part of I, am I right in thinking that she's part of some sort of like feminist terrorist cell that's like <laughs> going to blow up something. I mean, there's yeah. all this talk about bombs and there's this sort of how much she loved her, but she had to go. And sometimes, I mean, it, it almost seemed to me like the message is like, sometimes you just have to abandon your family and that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to abandon your family if it's for a good cause and it's okay if that cause includes, you know, blowing stuff up or it, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Like they, for how for how sprawling and complicated the story was for this, there were so many moments that they could have really dug into the characters, but it was it was very strangely hand wavy about a lot of the implications. Like, I mean, like you say, he says it's a savage problem, but I think the only moment that we see real emotional repercussions for Enola being abandoned by her mom is like right at the beginning when the 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 governess or the the maid is giving her gifts that her mother left behind. What kind gifts? I know she's made this herself. We were happy, weren't we, Mrs. Lane? Shouldn't she give me these presents herself? And then that's it. Like, from that point, she's like, well, like, time to find my mom. And then there's really, there there really isn't that much of this this emotional hook as far as the the impact that it would have on this young girl being abandoned by her mother and similarly yeah like the the reasons that she's abandoned we get this we get this moment with her mother at the end where yeah she's she's explaining she says you have to make a little noise if you want people to take you seriously and it's it's very heavily implied that I mean, it's kind of funny because throughout the course of the film, there's this implication that their mother is involved in something very bad. You know, it's like when they when they're investigating these locations and places, these clues. And it's like, what is she caught up in? You know, like I, there's a moment where uh, Sherlock, Henry Cavill as Sherlock, she says, like, you know, would mom do something? And he says, I shudder to think, you know, like they're clearly unsettled by the idea that their mother would be involved in something like this. But by the end of the movie, I could be wrong. I watched it twice. Maybe I still missed something. But by the end of the film, there there really isn't this moment where it's like, oh, no, 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 that was a misunderstanding. There was this and this and this. It's just kind of like we meet her and she's just kind of like, well, yeah, maybe I am a terrorist, but I love you. Like, it's uh, it's it's <laughs> yeah, very which weird. Is, is something that like it's a choice that, that obviously that could be made. Like we can go with this character. You know, I mean, essentially, I'm not criticizing the film for not having a lovable mother character. Right, right. I mean, that's fine. 
but but the issue is that i don't feel that we've that we've addressed this quote very savage problem of a mother abandoning her child like i don't feel any of that yeah like you're saying the repercussions of that i mean she's ostensibly in the in london looking for her mother but she's sort of getting tangled up in all these other aspects of the story and i think the reason why you know obviously the novels which i haven't even read um need not inform the films any more than the film wants to be informed like it's right. its own thing it can do whatever it wants yeah, right. and you know it exists as its own piece but it feels like um what could be a lot more interesting is to have this sort of story where i mean given that it, it's you know very clearly meant to be a feminist story and filled with a lot of you know on, i mean that's there's no subtlety in that regard whatsoever. It's not that there needs to be, but yeah. it's you know, yeah, it's it's addressed right on the outset that that's what's going to happen. And you know, I mean, it's fairly a given when you're taking essentially a Sherlock Holmes story, but it's about a woman. Yeah, so right, yeah. you know, of course, that's what it's going to be. Um, and it's lovely to have a story where a woman can show her cleverness and her rough and tumble adventures and so many of the things that are often seen as masculine with some panache mm -hmm. and with frankly uh, femininity i think millie bobby brown brings a lot of vitality into what you know into what she's doing yeah. just the, with her sense of playfulness and fun and i think the character gets to I, I think that the character gets to speak about feminism in the film uh, i mean it's certainly a fair message but what i wonder is if it, it would have been more effective to show her subverting nuanced masculine perspective and prejudice, frankly, pre prejudice from everyone, uh -huh. um, if she was more clearly defined as a female detective. Yeah, In other words, yeah. it's sort of like the the tired criticism of, could the movie have shown us her allegiances and her skills rather than telling us? Yeah. I mean, she sort of has this moment at the end where she says, like, and I'm a detective. And the way that the story was playing out i was kind of like oh yeah i guess she is a detective <laughs> um, <laughs> now that you mention it <laughs> because it's really you know she, she's out there and she's got you know these fun fight scenes and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of action and stuff going on but i never got the idea of of her really like buckling down and, and kind of solving things yeah. and i mean frankly and and it is it is a you know a young you know a, a young adult thing but young adults are capable of a lot of understanding and i was a little disappointed that so much of the mystery solving and cleverness ended up being falling into really two categories it was unscrambling words uh -huh. Uh -huh. and remembering conversations that the audience had never been shown <laughs> these were like the two keys to solving all the mystery yeah she would yeah. suddenly go hmm and she'd like think of a place and then like scramble the words around and go like ah it, it's an anagram for this. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and I never even got the point. She was like, she's like, I need to send a message to my mom. And so what I'm going to say, <laughs> she says what I'm going to say, because there's all this, there's this, there's this motif of using the language of flowers. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, Victorian, the, in the Victorian age, there was this um, interesting and complex language of flowers where different flowers had different meanings and yeah. significance. And so she says, I, I'm, I'm going to send my mom a message through the papers, which was a done thing. 
And the way that she does it is to say, oh, you know, chrysanthemum, I have like an iris for you. And iris means message and chrysanthemum is a code for this and this. And then she goes, and I knew that I had to make it like it's already, you know, in my mind, that's very vague. (laughs) It's got code words in it, like very good. And she's like, but then I knew I had to make it a devious scramble. So she like puts it into like this weird like hodgepodge letter, you know, just mesh of letters and puts it out there. And I never even understood like, well, why does she have to do that? Yeah. Like, is her mother in danger? I don't know because it's never clear to me. She's just sort of sure that her mother is out there and kind of looking for her. But I don't know why or how or any of this. And then in addition to just unscrambling the words, it's like I say, she will occasionally go like, oh. Like, of course, like mother or someone would be here because this. And then we get another flashback of some conversation that she had, which um, makes it, in my mind, much more of an adventure than a mystery. Because yeah, yeah, I think a, a more satisfying mystery is one where we're given a lot of the clues. And then, you know, we're trying to kind of figure out what's happening in a way that there's sort of a fair chance that we can yeah. rather than in this where you know, I mean, we have no chance of remembering things that we haven't seen. Well, that's the, that's I think that's part of what made the mystery so incredibly unengaging to me was the word scrambles are, for the most part, almost obnoxiously simple. So you get this combination of yeah stuff you couldn't have possibly known, and then stuff that's so ob- that that is so simple that it's kind of like you're just kind of watching it happen. You don't feel like you're a part of it at all. There's a there's a moment when she's when she's unscrambling stuff that she remembers from her mom. And again, this is like the double whammy because she's she's like, where could she where could she have gone? And then she remembers the conversation that she walked in on her on her mom having with the fellow suffragettes. And she says, what about what about Ellie Houseman? And we'll go to the Bankman Met. And she's thinking, oh, okay, let me unscramble these. Ellie Houseman, Ellie Houseman, Limehouse Lane. And I'm thinking, okay, so you've got 13 letters to scramble here, and you kept five of them in the exact same order. So, like, it's kind of a kind of a rookie move from Eudoria there, from uh, from from Enola's mom. And then you get the Bankman Met, which was the embankment. Yes. Which the the Bankman Met almost sounds like you're trying to say the embankment, but you're stuttering your way through it. It's the, <laughs> so the scrambles were like stupidly simple. But but then, like, the information you would need to unscramble them would be conversations we weren't privy to. So you're just kind of watching her do this. And it's like, all right, well, have fun, I guess, Enola. Like, yeah, you just you don't feel like you're a part of the process at all as the as the viewer, which I think is an in- no. a really important part of mysteries. Yeah. And that's where, again, leaning in toward personally, I think like I think that you could have made an engaging film with just this idea of her being a detective and trying to solve things. Yeah. And again, it's like I'm it's like I'm saying, rather than just telling us how ingenious she is and having all these flashbacks to all these things that she learned, she could be, you know, solving a mystery in the style of Sherlock Holmes. And you can still yeah. throw in all the action and the fun zany kid stuff, you know, it doesn't have to be any kind of a slow burn. Yeah. Well, I think I like we've mentioned a few times that this is that the story is complicated. Uh, and I think a, a p- part of the problem I had with it was that it was essentially three stories crammed together. Uh, and we've talked about all three of these stories mm-hmm. already, which was she's trying to solve the mystery of the missing. Uh, what, what, what was he called? He's a little a little Lord. 
um, the Marquis. Marquis. Yeah, the missing Marquis. And then she's trying to find her mother. And then you get this gigantic kind of in-your-face political undertone about voting and and the suffrage and and uh, all this other stuff. And it seems like the three never really meet. The Marquess and the political thing come together towards the end. But it's it seems like every time that she's kind of looking for stuff uh, regarding her mother, it, it really does feel like you're just watching a separate movie. Like you're just taking a break from this other story yeah. to get into this other story. And so... Yeah, I feel like it really robs the movie of any potential flow it could have had. Um, Especially since I think they're meant to meet. Like, I'm still convinced that in the director's mind, they do. In the screenwriter's mind, I think they all come together. I think there's a neat bow on it of how, you know, it intersects with her mother being involved with this political movement Uh, and Lord Tewksbury, the Marquis, being involved in in the movement. And everything is, I think, meant to come together. But they st- they still feel very fractured to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think a key part is we again we never really see how her mother's involved with this. We just know that she is, and that it may be violent. <laughs> and we know that the Marquis is a, an integral vote in this thing coming up. But uh, yeah, it feels very very yeah. detached. Well, that come that's sort of shoehorned right at the end that we find that out. I feel like yeah, um, yeah. That's not apparent in the beginning. Yeah, it's really not. Um, so. I mean, here's the thing. There's a a tradition of, you know, in mystery films with a lot of atmosphere. Like I think of noir movies, right? Mm -hmm. And noir movies, it is almost, it's sort of doing, you know, in some noir films that I very much like, there is a lot of what I'm sort of bemoaning in this film. And that's a lot of really complicated plot that doesn't really map out or make that much sense. Yeah, you get red herrings, and you're so unraveling, I think unraveling a mystery. Like, it, Yeah, and I mean, even afterward, I'm saying, like even mm-hmm. in retrospect, you kind of go like, huh, you know, famous, I mean, one of the, one famous example is The Big Sleep, the Raymond mm. Chandler novel that was turned into a film directed by Howard Hawks starring Humphrey Bogart, you know, very famous film noir mystery. Yeah. And that's one where it's so complicated that at one point making the film, they called up the screenwriter slash novelist Raymond Chandler to say, wait, so who killed this person? And he like stops for a moment and like flips through the book and thinks and he goes, I don't know. <laughs> so it's one of those it's one of those things where it's much more about like the atmosphere and the characters. Yeah. And so all that to say that I think we could have gone that you know I mean that that and that that is I think something that's happening in this film. Because as much as we're kind of picking apart little things and for me, largely, this film failed to connect. But there is, like I say, a great spirit of fun. And I think the people who are liking it are latching onto that most of all. Yeah, yeah. It's full of charismatic whimsy. And so on that, I just want to talk a bit about these, briefly about these characters, who they are, where they fit in and things. Yeah, yeah. And um, who, who's playing them. So I'm going to start with uh, Mycroft because... Oh, yeah. Uh, he's a character that I... Okay, so for whatever it's worth, um, which is not all that much, I suppose, Mycroft in the original Sherlock books is quite, quite different from what we're getting here. Oh. And in, I think, pretty much any iteration that you get of him, whether that's through, you know, very straightforward Sherlock adaptations um, or even out-of-the-way Sherlock adaptations, like, for example, in the TV show Monk. Monk is sort of seen as a Sherlock, and you meet his older brother, and his older brother is this agoraphobic 
genius. And that's kind of the way that Mycroft is presented in the mm. original books. He he works in government. He is said to be even like more intelligent than Sherlock. Yeah. A greater gift for observation, but he's just not a um go out and get him type guy. Like he's in there, he's working in the secret machinations of government to protect Britain on these other levels. And so he's not out mm. there investigating and fighting with daring do and all the other things that Sherlock does. Yeah. So it's a kind of a surprising choice to see him in this film as I mean at one point they say they they talk about his like him being jealous of not having um Sherlock's powers of observation and we certainly get the idea that he's I mean he's he's very stuffy and two-dimensional and kind of ridiculous, not an intelligent person, certainly not a <laughs> like subdued person. He, yeah. you know, he's very aggressive with his opinions. He's very showy. You know, he's, he's, um, it felt like he, he clearly cares a lot for station and appearance and propriety. Yeah. It, it felt like he, in lieu of a personality, he was essentially the patriarchy incarnate. Yeah, yes. He was kind of a – he was probably the closest thing we had to a narrative device as a character. Like he was just purely there to be – to represent everything that was wrong. Really? Yeah. And I And I checked whether this was the case in the books and it isn't. In the books, he's more of a – he is sort of still a force of – kind of wanting Enola to be maybe like in a boarding school and that sort of thing. Mm. And, but it's more from, it's, it's from much more fatherly sort of wanting to make sure that she's, you know, not running around with criminals on the streets of London <laughs> and yeah. less of a, I mean, I mean, really the way that the, the character of Mycroft is written and written and the way he's played by Sam Claflin is, I mean, he's, I mean, if he just touched his mustache once, he would be snidely whiplash. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say. Even in the voice, he like brings up his register a little bit yeah. and the way he carries himself. He's just so incredibly <laughs> yeah. on the nose, dastardly. It seems she's bested you again, Sherlock. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. The first the first thing that he says to on seeing her is just to sort of sneer at her and go, wow, you're, you're such a mess. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then... It, like within our first couple minutes of meeting him, he's picked up a book and he says, oh, good God, feminism. <laughs> Perhaps she was mad or senile. <laughs> yeah. And so very clearly, you know, and it, like I said, with perhaps the the level of um, nuance that, that I suppose is meant to be directed toward young adults, it's, mm -hmm. you know, here we are. And the feminism, <laughs> well, like I say, like, I, I love the idea of putting in a character who gets to, you know, especially the way I'm fascinated by the, the like, the way that women were treated at the time mm -hmm. and the way that might be used to their advantage and and the disadvantages that that might represent in trying to, like, solve a mystery and do something that's, quote unquote, masculine, uh -huh. I think is a fascinating story. And to see her succeed at that, I think would would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But it is, you know, it, I mean, it's odd. And I don't I I'll I'll slip back into the characters, but I just want to point out a quick moment that there's um in the beginning when they're talking about her mother and the strange homeschooling intensive that she's in, mm -hmm. there's a moment where they say mother said we were free to do anything 
and to be anyone. And right as it says, to be anyone, they have... we cut to the two of them looking into a mirror with false mustaches, the mother yeah. and daughter. And I was sort of like, okay, interesting. Like, is that kind of the the feminist message that we're going for here is that you too can be a man. <laughs> yeah. That, I had, a, I had a very similar thought. And again, like it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've, we, we, we just recently reassured a potential guest that we don't get political or anything like that, but it's, <laughs> it, it is one of those things where it, it, it's, it's very much, I think patronizing. And I, I, again, I'm a guy, so I'm sure, uh, I could be way off. I could be totally wrong. It could be that they hit the mark completely and and everything. I don't want to upset people, but I just feel like there are there are far more affirming and empowering and and edifying, interesting, fun ways to show what they were trying to show without without going the you know the easy route. Because like you said, you know, putting on a mustache and saying and we could be anyone. It's yeah. It it very much felt like like uh, femininity in this one was 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 bad that that you should always be shooting more to be a man yeah and i think you know that goes into you know how much of the quote-unquote femininity was brought up by the desires of the people who were embodying it and how much of it was sort of forced upon them Mm -hmm. by other things and and it gets into all that which the film never means to do um, mm-hmm. so that's all well and good. I mean, it's hard to, to judge and maybe, you know, it brings some of it on itself by being so, by adding in all these trimmings. I mean, it, it goes so far. It's not just a story about a, a woman in, you know, a man's world or something like that. It's really bringing in all these feminist elements from everywhere, mm-hmm. just pulling them in from, you know, from the character of Mycroft, from all these other things. And so it invites a lot of that on itself. But there's just the fact that, you know, it's a shame that we have to, like, look at it this way or scrutinize it in this way because there just aren't as many stories about young women, um, you know, going, you know, Victorian young women going on these sort of rough and tumble adventures, like I was saying. Yeah. And I think that Millie Bobby Brown in the character of Enola, I think she's fantastic. She she is a producer on this film as well, one of the youngest producers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the youngest people to have a producer credit. She's 16 years old. She's playing the part a little older than it is in the books. Mm -hmm. But I think she brings a lot of fun to it. She's very convincing. She's very compelling to watch. Yeah. Interesting. I have absolutely no complaints about the way that she's played it. Um, Some of the tone that it strikes and that she strikes may not be, you know, my, like directed at me or my preference, but I can certainly see why people would get involved with that, have fun with it. I really have no problems with her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She was, she was great. And back to the characters, I don't have issues. I like Sam Claflin as an actor, although I'm not going to go into my side rant of him doing almost this same thing in playing a absurdly two-dimensional villain that undercuts a film's credit as he did in The Nightingale. But (laughs) We're not going to touch that subject. <laughs> and we've talked uh, about this a bit. So that that's the that's the Mycroft that we get. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now now let's talk briefly, just briefly, about the Sherlock that we get. Because yeah, really Sherlock cool. is obviously, I mean, he's responsible for, you know, I mean, he's he's not the star of this show, but he's going to be bringing people to it. Yeah, people understanding. Oh, this has something to do with Sherlock Holmes. We all know who Sherlock Holmes is. Sherlock Holmes is the most portrayed fictional character in media by quite a bit i think he's been in more tv he's been adapted into more tv series radio dramas books spin-off novels 
movies, et cetera, et cetera, than any other character. More still, if you uh, consider all the, the spiritual adaptations vis-a-vis Monk, House. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a very, very, a character that really captures, you know, Western imagination. Yeah, for sure. And so he he's played, he, and, and I'll, I'll say this as well, just because it's sort of interesting to note. I don't know if you knew about this. I actually heard about this before I saw the film, but there is a lawsuit around this film mm. um, due to the way that Sherlock is portrayed. I'd heard that he's... And that's because... Yeah, is he is he too nice? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'd heard is that he's... Yeah. <laughs> So and and a lot of this I don't I don't really I don't really buy but the 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 way it's set up is that there there are certain Arthur Conan Doyle the you know the author of the original Sherlock mm-hmm. there are certain of his estates uh which hold various um aspects of copyright and Sherlock the Sherlock stories are sort of divided right now between public domain and copyright mm-hmm. and so essentially what's going on is these the the estate is trying to hold on to any of the intellectual Sherlock property that it can. But it's sort of difficult. It's difficult when people are adapting Sherlock so freely and not necessarily. I mean, if you take, you know, The Hound of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. a, a famous Sherlock novel, and adapt that, that's pretty straightforward. You know, we know what you're adapting. You're adapting The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. But when you're doing something like this, where you're just taking the character of Sherlock Holmes and putting him into a story in which he was never originally in, mm. then it becomes, suddenly it becomes this puzzle of, okay, so is this the Sherlock Holmes who's in public domain, as some of the earliest stories are? Or is this the Sherlock Holmes who is under copyright, as some of Arthur Conan Doyle's later Sherlock stories are? Yeah. And so the way that that they've tried to do this is to say that, well, in the later Sherlock Holmes stories, he's a bit more um, respectful toward women. He's a bit more gentle. And so since in this movie, he's portrayed as sort of gentle and respectful, he's clearly a slightly later iteration of Doyle's Holmes and therefore under copyright and therefore you owe us more money. And so that's kind of going on in the background here. Um, uh, and I have, uh, some other things about Sherlock that I'll, that I'll kind of skip over, but I just want to, to talk first about, uh, Henry, Henry Cavell as the, as Sherlock. Yeah, Henry Cavill, yeah. And I'll throw it to you real quick. What did you think of his performance, his casting as Sherlock? Henry Cavill is one of those actors who I actually love. I've loved seeing him in everything I see him in. He's... He seems like such a down-to-earth guy, and I've never considered him a bad actor in anything I've seen him in. And he and he's been in some doozies that I've seen. Mm. Uh, he's been in some pretty some pretty bad movies in the past, but he's always been among my more favorite parts of those movies. But I have to say, I I think this was the movie that made me realize he's been pretty one note for the last decade, uh, <laughs> oh, no. because. In this in this film, his Sherlock is basically stoic, silent, usually with kind of a, a knowing smirk slash grimace, you know, observing things and just sort of saying, hmm, yes, hmm, you know, we'll see about that kind of thing. And then I'm realizing well, he, this is the Witcher. He's playing he's playing he's playing himself in the Witcher right now. But then I realized that was Superman too. Superman was just kind of in in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. I have not had the extraordinary pleasure of watching Justice League yet. But in every uh, depiction of Superman I've seen with him, it's very much 
stare ahead, furrow your brow, make a few kind of, and I just feel like he's better than that. I feel, uh, and considering that Sherlock Holmes is kind of known for being, I, I guess, somehow simultaneously very antisocial and offensive to people, but also being a bit charismatic and eccentric, uh, the the charisma and the eccentricity did not come through i thought with cavill's sherlock i thought he was he 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 played it rather bland i thought which i again henry i know you listen to this podcast and i love you to death and but i just i feel like i feel like he could do better than he did yeah uh right in henry we'd love to hear from you yeah well let us know but yeah i agree and i i think some of the antisocial qualities or at least the the more aggressive qualities of Sherlock Holmes uh, I think come from certain Sherlock iterations that happened after the books that sort of got cemented in the popular mind. Oh, but, oh yeah, that's a fair point. Um all that aside to say yeah I mean he certainly plays it in a subdued way which you know is an interesting choice and he said I, I was I was watching an interview with 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 Henry Cavill and he says that he is a real sort of stickler for details and sort of a pedant about going in and figuring out you know like would Superman do this would Superman do that would the Witcher do this would the Witcher do that and he said that I thought it was interesting he said he decided to absolve himself completely of that with Sherlock Holmes he said Sherlock wasn't a, a character that he read a lot growing up or anything and didn't know about and he said he talked with the director and with Millie Bobby Brown, who was obviously his co-star and producer, and kind of came to the decision that he was going to just work with the script rather than trying to get into like what is, you know, the Sherlock Holmes like and how to play him that way. So that's an approach that he made. Yeah. But the main thing that I think that that I found sort of distracting about Sherlock is the aesthetic appearance of Sherlock, which is yeah. brought together in a few ways. Number one, um, Henry, you know, obviously he's a, he's a movie star. He's a good-looking guy. Uh, that's fine. You know, Sherlock um, has been played by handsome actors before, yeah. and the, there's no issue yet. But even his even his costumer was making the obvious complaint of when she was trying to fit him that he is not built in as the way that any Victorian would have been built <laughs> or possibly could have been. <laughs> he's I mean, a very tall, he's hulking such man. This massive, muscular beefcake guy that it just doesn't fit <laughs> yeah victorian and especially not sherlock he just sort of looms like this you know <laughs> like superman yeah yeah as he as he walks around you know and okay i'm gonna go on a quick <laughs> it's gonna be very a very quick hat rant okay all right people in men in through the victorian times and up to several decades after the Victorian times, always wore hats outside. They always wore hats. Ah, they always wore hats. Interesting. Sherlock. Sherlock has an iconic hat. It's not even mentioned in the in the stories, but he wears the deerstalker hat. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking maybe they just decided that he looked too ridiculous in a deerstalker hat because he <laughs> and Tewksbury, the two men, the uh, they never wear hats. Everyone yeah. else is wearing hats. Whenever Enola puts on men's wear, she adds a hat because you had to wear a hat. <laughs> Everyone has them on all the time. It was an extremely important article of clothing to the Victorian gentleman, to the Victorian peasant, to any man <laughs> in Victorian times. And it's just 
he just walks around without putting on uh, not even the iconic Sherlock hat, but any hat. Yeah. Through the entire movie. I too noted the hatlessness. Yeah. Did you really? I did. And he and the Tewksbury character, who's the, the sort of quasi love interest of Enola, um, he, he also never wears a hat. And those two, for some reason, are the only characters that never wear hats. And especially in the case of Sherlock, since we picture him wearing a hat, you know, since we know his iconic hat, uh, uh-huh. it was a very odd choice to to go that way. Yeah. And yeah, that's the end of my hat rant. And it didn't even feel like an artistic expression. It feel like they. It feels like they just forgot. Like it. Well, what it part of what it felt like to me is either some sort of artistic expression, some idea that it looked too silly, or the fact that there was. I think the the camera sort of treats Henry's and, well, that is Sherlock Sherlock and Tewksbury's hair with sort of loving affection. <laughs> Maybe there's like a... we get a lot of moments of just them like looking all quaffed and their hair is just sort of beautiful. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering if it was just a decision of like the director or the designers or whatever. They just liked the hair so much they decided that it would be a shame <laughs> to cover it up with hats. And so instead... Those two characters are just going to go hatless. I like to imagine that there was a behind-the-scenes kind of battle between the costume department and the hair and makeup department, and there's just this this constant yeah. tug of war of just like we show the hair, he should wear a hat. Yeah, Sherlock is known for wearing a hat, but I I did not I did not know myself that it was common in Victorian England to always wear a hat outside, but it makes sense in hindsight, and. Yeah, I just it it was just this weird. I think combined with with Henry's very straightforward kind of deadpan performance, that combined with the fairly straightforward costume, the lack of a hat, and the the massive hulking stature of Henry Cavill, it was just. I'm not even a huge diehard Sherlock fan, but I feel like I know enough about what Sherlock is like that I did not recognize him as Sherlock in that movie. It- it just feels, yeah, it feels odd to me in a movie where Sherlock is meant to be sort of a side character. I mean, not sort of a side. He's meant to be a side character. Mm-hmm. He's he's not the main character. The whole point is that we're following his younger sister and we're just supposed to interact with him lightly. And it seems like given that that's the case, it's an odd time to decide to do an atypical Sherlock. Yeah. Like, why not bring in a Sherlock who we can sort of recognize as, ah, yes, this is, you know, you're introducing so many new things and turning the story on its head so much that why are you also deciding to take (laughs) the character of Sherlock and not in like really on the nose and obvious and big ways that they're saying something, just sort of in all these subtle things by the casting and costuming make him, you know, I mean, there's nothing about him to suggest Sherlock Holmes if they weren't calling him Sherlock Holmes. I mean, in- including the fact that, and I know this is part of the story, but the fact that Enola is literally better at solving mysteries than he is. She's a yeah. step ahead of him the entire movie. Yes. So yeah, in in literally every sense of the word, this is this is just an older brother trying to find his sister Enola. That's that's <laughs> basically the the extent. But yeah, I think it's a fun movie. It's 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 quirky uh, stylistically. It's got panache, you know. Um, as a movie taking place within the Sherlock universe, um, it didn't feel very Sherlocky. There wasn't really much mystery solving going on from anybody. But I mean, I mean, it has like what, like a like a like a sixty or a sixty-five on Rotten Tomatoes, maybe a seventy or something. It it's a perfectly passable good time. 
for its intended audience, I think. Yeah, I have a few friends who who liked it pretty well. Like, you know, they thought it was an enjoyable sort of fun popcorn movie with a you know, with an engaging lead. I I I would go so far as to say I, I don't know if there was much that was necessarily wrong with it so much as I wish there had been more that was right with it. I don't know if that's even if that's too cryptic. Uh, one one last uh, parting thought I have for this movie was about a moment where I'm pretty sure that they tried to say the theme of the film, you know, kind of like a hit the nail on the head moment where Enola's talking with a friend of her mother's. She's trying to find her mom and her mother's friend. She tells her after she uh, jujitsu's her onto the floor. If you want to stay in London, be tough. Be tough. Live the life. But don't do it because you're looking for someone. Do it because you're looking for yourself. And I thought I had to actually pause the movie and think about it because I thought <laughs> at, fir- at first glance, that has to be the most vapid and empty platitude I've ever heard, especially because I never got the impression that Enola was necessarily lost or looking for herself. It seemed like she was pretty sure of who she was from minute one. Uh, I just thought, like, yeah, if you're going to be in London, like, you know, live the life, be tough. I, is living in London being tough? I don't know. But don't do it because you're looking for someone. Do it because you're looking for yourself. Yeah, that moment was very interesting. I noted it too. Not only because it's the introduction of Chekhov's corkscrew, <laughs> but also because... Fans of the movie will get that. Yeah, fans of the movie. A little watch to find out. But also because in that moment, it's not only that it's this sort of empty platitude delivered with almost an embarrassing level of gravitas, but also because this movie seems determined to say that, I don't know, I'm just really thrown by the mother-daughter relationship in this film. Yeah. It's almost like, look, of course your mother loves you. She just had to abandon you without explaining why. And I know you're looking for her, but stop looking for her. Just go and be yourself. (laughs) I don't know. I don't understand the message. Yeah, exactly. We're already like we're already holding on by a thread to any sense of intrigue this show has. This is like yeah, you're you're closing a door on like one of the few things that could be interesting. <sighs> but yeah, I mean, it, over the course of the conversation it's been kind of clear to me I think who would enjoy this movie. Um, you know, it's 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 got a very very uh potent girl power vibe which is terrific. I have no problem with that. Um, I do think <laughs> I don't know how to say this. I got no that that see that sentence. You're right. almost getting not that there's anything wrong with that. There's anything wrong with that. No, it, it's a it's a it's a there's a moment when uh when uh, Lestrade is chasing after Enola and Tewksbury and he's trying to break down a door and he can't do it. He doesn't have the strength. Help me now! Useless maiden! And I just think like, yeah. Uh, oh, all right. Point, point taken. Uh, I just, I feel like, I feel like it's possible to make a movie that is 100% girls get it done, girl power, like, but I just, I feel like if you, if the, the men are on board for the most part, the men are watching it and enjoying it. You don't have to, you don't have to keep telling us how crappy we are over the course of the movie. You know, <laughs> I've got. I've got I've here's the thing. <laughs> I've got plenty of guilt over my privilege. Um <laughs> but 
yeah, they really hit it home. <laughs> well, it, here's the thing. I think that, you know, here's me coming in as the man telling him how to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Here, here's what I think. <laughs> if they had done, it, it's it's what I think. If they had just shown us her, I think just her being, you know, encountering prejudice, subverting expectations, and solving things, fighting, getting things done, which there was a lot of, but if there had just if it had leaned on that, mm-hmm. I think that's telling the story that you want to tell us. Yeah. And on that 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 segues nicely into that I feel that there is potential for a much better sequel to this film. Oh yeah. Um and that's because we get the idea at the end that Sherlock is taking over. Mycroft says, "All right, I wash my hands of her. You can you can take over." So we don't have to deal with Mycroft constantly trying to put her into that very strange uh, <laughs> lady school boarding school <laughs> yeah which seems to be focused completely on like making women sort of very frivolous and victorian and dainty despite the fact that that's not the way that i encounter that the headmistress is at all but she seems very <laughs> determined to make all the girls like i mean she drives around in an automobile and is clearly like a powerful single woman and her whole goal seems to make be to make other women Subjugate. dainty little flowers to decorate yeah. the home of some man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very strange. But anyway, um I think with now that Sherlock's in charge, we've sort of like wade through this suffrage thing. The mother is, you know, now out of the picture. So we've now got essentially what we wanted, which is an independent girl in London who's ready to now who is calling herself a detective and is now ready to solve some mysteries and interact lightly with Sherlock, who is now her ward. And so I feel like we've taken this whole movie with a lot of charisma, a lot of fun production value, some interesting scenes and so on to get to where I think, frankly, we almost should have started. And that's the setup that we now have. And if they go into a sequel, which I think they will, given the success of the series, the the first one, and that there's more novels to adapt and so on. I have much more confidence in the second one, at least having the great potential to be be fun and to show us what I was kind of hoping for going in. And that's playing around with the Sherlock universe and giving us a fun female character who gets to dart around as a young person, maybe getting herself into situations and mysteries that like Sherlock would never get into himself yeah. or never be able to and yeah, and yeah. solving them. And that I look that I look forward to. That's the sort of spirit of fun and subversion of genres that that I personally would be more interested in watching. Absolutely. And I, I guess I would just cap off by saying if you're a person who likes, you know, fun action movies if you're interested in you know millie bobby brown coming off of the stranger things series you're probably going to find our review of this a bit nitpicky and you're going to have fun with it so yeah whatever that's worth yeah don't don't listen to us go and enjoy it it's it's, it's a fun it's a fun movie and uh <laughs> one one thing to say in my defense is i realize that i've probably played into several stereotypes myself by taking issue with the movie as a reminder, uh, before before you think it's bad that that two men have have critiqued a movie with feminist overtones, so the screenplay is written by a man and it was directed by a man. So we're critiquing men here. All right. <laughs> Anyways, 
So that was Enola. Enola was a and with that. fun little film. Fun, fun little flick. So, Bo, after I graciously assigned you Enola Holmes, you gave me a movie to watch. Yeah, I responded with, uh, I know where I'm going, which is a Powell and Pressburger film. Uh, our first Powell and Pressburger film. We'll talk about what that means, but people who know me know that I love Powell and Pressburger as filmmakers. Yeah. And this was, I mean, this one is a, it's a, it's a bit of an odd connection, but we are, um, you know, we're dealing with a woman who's um, going out of her element, who's trying to get something done. We've got some playful things going on with the narration, and there's seeking for someone who, you know, is out of the way. And so I thought, mm. felt like enough. It was suggested by um, a, a fan of the podcast. And I thought it was a nice, a nice time to to tie it in with Enola Holmes. So yes, nice. I know where I'm going. Where are you going, Bo? <laughs> Glad we got that out of the way right up top. It's just a little wordplay. This kind of fun we have around here. Uh, so I know where I'm going. It's a film. <laughs> uh, this is actually my first Powell and Pressburger film ever. Yeah. I, being someone who knows Bo, I have also known how much. He loves these two. And I've been the whole time I've been thinking, what's the deal? And now I know what's the deal. So let's talk about it. Uh, <laughs> this the, In this film, we follow Joan Webster, played by Wendy Hiller. She is a headstrong, ambitious woman on her way to marry a Mr. Robert Bellinger. Sir Robert Bellinger. Sir. That's right. Sir Robert Bellinger. That's, an, that's actually an important detail. Sir Robert Bellinger. One of the richest men in England. He uh, He's an industrialist. He owns uh, something chemical. It's like consolidated chemical industries. Like the most corporate, like, you know, it's the most industrial name you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So she's <laughs> on her way to meet him on the Isle of Killorin. And uh, she's from from the outset, it seems to be that she is marrying him exclusively for his wealth or perhaps his uh, industrial connections. Uh, early on, she's talking with her father about it and she tells him that she's getting married. And and he says, well, you can't marry, you know, chemical consolidated industries. And then she says, oh, can't I? And that's when he realizes that she's going to be marrying the guy who who owns the dang thing. So her journey to Kaloran is stopped unexpectedly in the final stretch by a treacherous gale, uh, which traps her on the Isle of Mull, which is a frustratingly short distance away from her final destination. She's, she says at one point it looks like it would be a half-hour boat ride. You can see it very clearly. Not, I'm not even going to say on the horizon. It's, cl- it's closer than the horizon. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very near. And uh, nobody will agree to ferry her through the gale, so she's basically stuck there until the storm passes. The town's uh, ferryman, the boatman, my word. Uh, so they said everybody has such thick accents in this movie that I had to look up what, you know, how, how their names were written so I could get some semblance, <laughs> find the cross section between what they said and what I'm reading to find out how to pronounce it. So the the boat guy, played by Finley Curry, his name is Raw. I, I'm going to call him Rory, but it's spelled Rory. <laughs> uh, it's the spelling is R U A. I R I D H, those Scots, man. It's Gaelic. It's Gaelic, Gaelic. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, there's a lot of fun names in this movie. Um, so, anyways, he refuses to to drive her. So while she's stuck on the island, she meets and kind of slowly over the course of the film finds herself falling for a naval officer named Torquil McNeil. And 
her interactions with him are basically the crux of this movie as she uh as she has to come to terms with where she thinks she's going and where where she is Bo, you, all right listeners at home both making a face at me what have i done have i cursed by mispronouncing one of their names have i said something just just the way that you said torquil mcneil <laughs> i don't know it sounded like torquil mcneil come on down <laughs> No, so so she's with Torquil and they they kind of they have this very nuanced bond that starts to form over the course of the movie and of course, you know, the whole reason that she's stuck on this island is because because she's on her way to get married. She she has her plans. She knows where she's going, you might say. Uh or does she? That's the tagline I saw a lot when I was looking for details on the movie. They pretty much all said that Joan Webster knows where she's going. Or does she? So over the coming days, uh, she has a series of experiences with the locals that kind of challenge her sensibilities, her ambitions, and, you know, obviously, most importantly, her sense of where she's going. So all these little inner conflicts, they kind of converge in this finale that's probably more epic than you would expect in your average run-of-the-mill romantic dramedy <laughs> with uh, some really cool set pieces and whatnot, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, so that's that's basically the, the core of the story is... Uh, it's it's a story. It's it's one of those tale as old as time kind of things. Because as I was watching it, I was thinking, "Hey, it's like that movie Cars." Oh dear! You know, it's just like that movie Cars. You get stuck in this little town, and uh, or or uh, you know, Cars is actually supposed to be kind of a, a reference to Doc Hollywood. So really, this movie's ripping off Doc Hollywood when you think about it. Yeah, big if true. Big if true. Can anyone confirm? Uh, but it's it's very much the classic fish out of water. I don't like it here. No wait, I do kind of story. I mean, my favorite movie of all time follows this template, which is Groundhog Day. So it's there's a reason that the story that this kind of story archetype is is revisited so often, and I think it's because it's it's a fantastic way to do a character study. It's a fantastic way to show a location. I mean, the location is often the star of the show in a lot of these stories. And it's there's no exception here. Um, so the Isle of so the Isle of Kaloran is actually made up. The, the that the island does not exist. They made it up for the movie. But the Isle of Mull that she's trapped on is real. That is a real place. And they shot a lot of the movie on location on the Isle of Mull. So real that I have been there. You've been to the Isle of Mull, Bo? I sure have. Yeah. I'm going to ask you some questions. It's a fantastically fantastically beautiful place. Still as. Uh, still has very much a feel of being very remote and out of time. You get that vibe from the movie that there's that, that this is this little bubble of timeless culture that just exists free from everything else. And uh, yeah, Bo has actually been to Scotland more more than once, right? You've been there a couple times. Yeah, several times. Yeah. So you got you 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 your your heart is with the Scots, as they say, as the old saying goes. <laughs> The Isle of Mull is real, and I was actually almost kind of sad that – it's funny. Bo has been telling me for – time flies. I guess years now that Pal, that one of one of the signature traits of Powell and Pressburger is their use of color, and this is a black and white movie. So I was very sad because, A, I was excited to see you know how they do it, and B, uh, this island looked gorgeous in black and white, and I could only imagine that a splash of color would have done it a lot of good too just to see – I, what I would imagine were some very lush greens. Um, it's yeah. The, a lot of the location shooting that really 
when I, when I would go back and read several critical reviews, most of them would praise the island and the way it was shot because it's just it's very raw and real. You feel like you're really it's it's one of those it's one of those rare movies where I feel like you're getting a good story, but you also feel like a tourist. You you do get to immerse yourself in this place. So the the story is 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 pretty pretty straightforward. Um, so I I think a lot of the nuance in the film lies with the characters and their interactions. Um, and I want to say I want to confess right off the bat. I so I did like this movie a lot, and it made me want to watch a lot more Powell and Pressburger. But and this is a big but. I do not like Joan Webster. I did not like the protagonist. I think. Maybe maybe it's because she reminds me of of people I've known or something, but there's this again, this story's been done so many times, and I don't know why I'm harder on Joan than I have been on other characters who are caught in similar situations, but uh there's there are there are moments in the film where as 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 I've said, she's she's on her way to marry Sir Sir Robert Bellinger for Bo, did I miss something? Was it super clear? It seemed like it was basically for the money and for the industry, for the for the for everything that like, but altogether superficial. Well, that's something that I was going to bring up because that certainly is sort of a driving force, and it's like you're saying that there the story the story is in itself is is not complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a story that was already you know tried and true in 1945 when they made the movie and has been done many times since. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, right from the beginning, I mean, we open similar to Enola Holmes with a, a sort of a very playful open. I mean, in this case, it's not addressing the camera, but there's a narrator who's, mm-hmm. you know, who's not present through the rest of the movie saying, you know, well, she knows where she's going. Like, look at this child. And then, you know, we jump to, and we're given a little montage of her growing up and seeing that she's, had this sort of determination to kind of rise to the top and be a person who has some money and power to throw around. Yeah. And so that's there. But but I think there's an interesting moment um, that you've already referenced when she's sitting down with her father at the beginning of the film while, uh-huh. she's, while she's still in England talking about, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's actually just as she's about to leave on her voyage to go to, on her, I mean, on her, train to Scotland to begin this, you know, the the film, the adventure, and to get married. And she's talking about, she's sitting there and he says, her, her father says to her, now Joan, now here Joan, stop pretending. Yeah. As she's, as she's kind of being this way. And she sort of, you know, I think he sort of sees layers to her. And I personally feel, I don't, I didn't have the same reaction that, that, that you did to Wendy Hiller and to the character of Joan Webster. And I think that one of the things that makes this movie more than just like, oh, there's this woman and she's just sort of this gold digger is that I think that the film really loves her. And I personally found a fair bit of nuance in this scene because what she talks about is when she's talking about her dreams and, oh, can you imagine it at Scotland? And you start to see the heart of her that comes through at various points that she's continually trying to suppress. And that's when, mm. because what she talks about is not like, oh, the, you know, the servants and the castle and the fine wines and the food and the cars and all this. She's talking about, oh, can you just imagine being there in Scotland and the moors and the ocean and the, and the and the rocks and the the trees and it's all, you know, it's not this um, superficial money thing. It's it's adventure and romance. 
that's what she's talking about. I think she has determined in her mind, to me, it feels like a case of of a, a character who is determined from a young age that like th- this is what they want. Like they want this thing. And that's mm-hmm. to have sort of the finest and the best and to, you know, to, to have money and, and prestige. Yeah, yeah. And she's sort of set her heart on that and she's gone about it and she's, uh, you know, very self-willed and she's reached that place. You know, she's about to marry one of the richest men in 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 Britain in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I feel like the the, the movie is continually showing us hints of her sort of suppressing that that sort of um mythic romantic connection to to the land and to sort of romance and adventure that is very much represented by Scotland and by the Isle of Mull and by the character of Torquil who I think yeah shows a it, it, is the sort of the manifestation of all these things that she's trying to suppress mm. yeah yeah and, and I definitely get that sense of her kind of yeah this the, the the facade slowly being chipped away piece by piece over the course of the film and her and her reaction to it multiple times being kind of that she's afraid of 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 losing that um I do think going back just a little bit um the, she clearly does come across as a bit of a romantic um early on that it's not necessarily just about the money but there's a moment that I loved at the very be- towards the very beginning when she's on the train she kind of falls asleep and she has this dream that's kind of it's this it's it's almost less of a dream and more just her running thoughts through her head while she's lying there in bed Do you, John Webster, take consolidated chemical industries to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. And do you, consolidated chemical industries, take John Webster to be your lawful wedded wife? Like, it's just like, yeah. it's, it's very visceral and, and silly and, and this kind of fun visual of like... It's, yeah, it's a wonderful satire that drives into the anti-materialism message, I think. Yeah. At th- that moment, I mean, this this train journey, this dream that she has. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. And uh, I think I, I sympathized with her and I, I, I enjoyed... I especially enjoyed watching all of her experiences with the people on the island. Um, but I think what got me the most, and I don't know, this is chronologically my issue comes from near the end of the film which i don't know if that's kosher but it's it's specifically related to her character so i'm just going to get into it a bit i won't get into a lot of the details about there's there's other fun stuff to talk about at the end but uh towards the end of the film she's reaching a point of desperation where she can tell that she is falling for torque wheel and she can't let that happen she knows where she's going she has to get to she has to get to kaloran and so the gale is still raging. It's been raging for what days? I'm not. I I forget what the passage of time was in this film, but I feel like it's been a good long while. I th- I want to say four days, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm it not felt sure. like it's a, it's a few days. It felt like four, so yeah, give or take. And uh, so she's she's trying to to talk to Rory about taking her across across the the water to Kaloran. He refuses adamantly, repeatedly. So she ends up convincing Kenny, this younger guy on the island, to to drive her across. And there's this moment, and the gale is still raging. And you know, again, this is probably a lot of my own bias leaking in. But did you notice? This was probably a rewatch for you, right? This wasn't your first time seeing it, being the Powell Press Burger Man that you are. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I've seen it a few times. Okay, so did you get the feeling watching it again that 
this this climax with her trying to cross the water at at any cost, including at the cost of other people potentially losing their lives. To me, I got I got some I kept thinking about 2020 and the COVID situation that the country's been facing. Of she's got she she's got these feelings of like I have to get there, and they're saying, but she can't. There's a gale. You will die. And then she gets somebody else to ferry her. He's gonna die too. Like you're gonna you're endangering him now with what you want. And then at one point, yeah, uh, Torquil even he he corners her on the stairs and he says, "Do you really think you know these waters better than Rory?" Go on, say something. I will. Are you a complete fool? Well. How dare you speak to me like that? Is it not enough that you've been told that you cannot sail today? Do you think you know better than folk who've lived here all their lives? Rory said it was going down. Kenny said so too. What do you expect Kenny to say? You bought him, did you not? There's no need to shout at me. Why, the lad has never seen 20 pounds in his life. If you must commit suicide, why can't you do it in Manchester? Why'd you have to come here? Don't shout at me. You're insulting. And stop bothering about me. Why, what about Kenny? Well, what about him? What about Bridie? What about the crew of the lifeboat that'll have to put out to save you? What about their wives? What about their children? Do you think that I'm standing here wasting time over you? I'm not interested in your reasons. Are you not? Are you interested in anything but yourself? I don't know how to mind my own business. That won't carry you far on this island or on Kaloran. You can't have this island. And you can have Kaloran. Fine. Then you won't be in any hurry to get there. You can't think you know more about these waters than Rory. Why do you think he refused to take you? Because he's as stubborn as you are? Because he wanted to go to the dentist. Oh, go ahead, then. And drown yourself. But to me, I'm like 100% with Torquil. I'm like, listen, look, look at look at the selfishness yeah. of what you're doing here. You could be... You could be hurting it like a, a, this this little guy who doesn't really know much better, and he's just want, he just wants to help. And at, at that moment, I thought that was it's interesting because her character I mean, she clearly has a, a an arc that follows through the film, and and it, it's clearly meant to be kind of the low point of the story where she you know she's reached her breaking point and she can't handle being here any longer. She has to go get married. But uh, for me, I found it almost unforgivable how how little concern she had for for Kenny for the safety of anybody that she was admonishing to take her across and this is it's it's a thing that happens i think in a lot of romantic comedies where you know you got to have that low point in the relationship that low point in the interaction and i feel like a lot of the time i feel like they go too far in in making a character seem flawed to the point that yeah for me the the endangerment of of other people for what I mean and and the nice thing is the movie makes it very clear I don't feel like the narrative is missing this point at all because no. there's um when she's when Kenny agrees to take her Kenny's girlfriend I forget her name comes in and chews Joan out and she and she says it Bridie I think Bridie Yeah Bridie said exactly what I'm thinking Bridie wants to speak to you What is it Bridie It's about the boat miss don't be thinking of taking it out, miss. Himself will murder Kenny. Nonsense. I look after your father. Anyway, Kenny's a man. He's taken out the boat alone many times. But never in a gale. Himself will never take it out in a southwesterly gale. But it's blowing out. Your father said so. It's going down all the time. Himself would never take it out today. And what about the money Kenny's going to earn? Do you want to have to wait another four years to marry him? Well, I would then if it has to be. Some folks there are can be waiting a day to satisfy their passion. What are you saying? Some folks there are who want to drown fine young men and break poor girls' hearts so that they can be bedded one day sooner. 
You'd better get out. I'll be getting out tonight, please. Who are you to be giving orders? You that come in the city with your airs and graces and your heart of stone? Why should you think that our lives don't matter at all and that yours are so important? <laughs> and so to that extent, I don't think that the movie is flawed for this at all. Like, it's it's very clear that what she's doing is selfish. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that, I mean, we're, I feel like we're in sympathy with Torquil in a way that you don't really get in most movies. I mean, he doesn't, he's, uh, this sounds a lot worse than it is. I mean, he sort of like strikes her as she's going to do this. And it's it's certainly not played in any way as sort of abusive or aggressive. It's it's certain it's much more of a listen, you don't understand. Like if you do this, like you're probably going to die and this kid as well yeah. is going to get killed by your decision. And I think it's right. I mean, that is a scathing little moment where you talk about where the woman comes in and says, you know, oh, you know, some people just can't be bothered to wait another day to go to go bed their man and therefore they're going to get people killed. And she's like, how dare you? But we agree with her. I mean, the thing that I think that that some people are missing is that, I mean, that we as the audience know that what she's afraid of is losing her position because she's in love with Torquil. What some of the characters think is that she's just, I mean, it, it's it's a different kind of selfishness. She's yeah. selfish in both ways. And I think that what yeah. they're seeing is that she's selfish because she just can't stand to, oh, she just has what she wants and she wants it right now and she can't stand to wait. Whereas what it is for her is not that she can't wait another day or so to mm-hmm. get what she wants. That's fine. It's that she feels she's in danger of losing it because so ensnared is she in the spell of this place that if she doesn't get out of here, she's going to succumb and she sees that she's in danger of losing it. So it's a different sort of selfishness. It's still very reckless of her. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's varying degrees. But yeah. And I think I think if you view it through the lens of the kind of mythic tone that the film strikes, it becomes a bit easier to forgive her. Like, well, it's not like my forgive. It's not like she needs my forgiveness. She's a fictional character from a movie like 50, you know, 80 years ago. But uh, she uh, it's it, it made it easier for me to accept the situation knowing a how much literally everyone else is upset at her for it and b yeah. um the the very very poetic nature of of why she has to get off this island it's again cuz if ever if half the people who knew her on the island were right and she was just doing it cuz she's like I don't want to wait another day I want to get married right now then like it, it she truly would be an absolutely loathsome character I think but um and and obviously it is it is still selfish. Um, but there there is that moment that I love where after Torquil lets her go, uh, he comes back up and he's just grouchy about the whole thing. Like I can't believe this stupid girl's gonna go get herself killed. Like everybody else killed. Like and then uh, he speaks with his friend who I thought was a wonderful character, Catriona. Catriona. Catriona, played by Pamela Brown. Pamela Brown. She was fantastic. I love Catriona. She tells him, you idiot, like, she's running from you. And then he says, say that again. And before she can even say it again, he just bolts and, like, runs after. And now, about this is where I get a bit confused. I, I'm i no stranger to love. You know the rules, and so do I. <laughs> uh, Gosh. But uh, I'm curious about why, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you believe his motives are for when he finds out that she's going to kill herself because she's running away from him, my reaction would be to convince her, hey, tell you what, I'll go live on the other side of the island for a few days until it clears up, okay? Like, I'll free you of this temptation. But instead, 
he says, all right, I'll help you cross the storm that'll probably get all three of us killed. What, what, what do you think is going on in his head for that, for that moment? Because for me, I, I, I can't wrap my head around his, his reaction to run out there makes perfect sense to me. But then when he, when he jumps into the boat and says, all right, let's go. I, 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 I was stumped. I watched the movie a few times actually. And I, I related to him so well on so many things, except for that. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what was going through his head when he decided to, to also join them on their boat trip instead of try harder to stop it. Well, I think that, um, and we've, you know, we've jumped to the end of the film here, but I, I think that, I think he'd already given basically the most valiant effort. I mean, she's literally on the boat. She's ready to go. The guy has been paid. He's been promised his money, you know, that enters into this little subplot of him being able to, uh, to get married and start his life. And so mm. everything is in action, you know, and he's already like he physically stopped her from going. That's until true. he just li- literally could not anymore. And so I think also I don't get the idea that I don't know that that Joan Webster has is yet has been honest enough with herself yet that she is fully cognizant of the I mean she knows oh. but she hasn't really admitted that this is why she's doing what she's doing. And so That's a good point. Yeah. She's trying to get there she's trying to get there and i think it's one of those things where he knows he as a naval officer with his steadiness and his calm knows that if if he can get on there then maybe they have a chance at helping her across. at surviving and i think his and he's one of these um you know we see at a few mo- moments in the film that although he is a sensible and reasonable character he's also not a character who's going to um equivocate or let the grass grow under his feet he's very much uh, you know ironically <laughs> he's someone who really knows where he's going and <laughs> and in a much more authentic way i think he's he's fine to be patient when he needs to be patient when he knows what he wants he's ready to take it mm-hmm. if somebody isn't willing to give it to him then he accepts that as well he's very much going to take things as they come yeah that's a good point and this is actually, yeah, this is making me realize, like, um, that moment when she says she's running away from you and he says, say that again, that's like all the other characters. He's been assuming this whole time that she really has, she really is just being purely self-interested. And yeah, him being, for some reason, I completely forgot to take into account the fact that he's a naval officer and that he would actually probably be the most skilled person to get them across. And he probably feels this sense of responsibility that it now if she dies, it's not her being selfish. It's his fault for driving her out there for for driving her away out there. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. So that. Yes. Well, that's there's that loop tied up for me because that was that was (laughs) (laughs) although I do still think that it makes for a fun comparison, a fun parallel to what we're going through today when you've got all these you've got. Literal experts. You've got Rory and and the naval officer Torquil. You have all these people telling her it's too dangerous, and her saying, you know, but yeah. I've I've got feelings inside, and I got to I got to do this. Um. <laughs> fun comparison. I'm glad we could work some COVID fun into this podcast. I know. I know. I, our audience is probably listening to like they haven't mentioned COVID or any of the 2020 problems yet. Um, <laughs> no, but it's it it really was a fan a fantastic movie. Um, so going going back a little bit now that I have nearly spoiled everything about the ending um <laughs> we should probably go back and and talk a bit about her falling in love with this island a little bit because that's obviously the whole reason that this finale is happening in the first place yeah so it, there's a moment 
here that I thought was kind of, you know, so this this film starts out as under the working title, The Misty Island. And it's one mm-hmm. of a series of Powell and Press. I mean, not a series, but um, in the in the literal sense, but it's one of several hits that, that Powell and Pressburger have had. They sort of misstep a little bit with the film they did right before this, which, all, which also had a sort of a mythic anti-materialist kind of message to it called A Canterbury Tale. Oh, yeah. Tale. And that one um, is still respected today, but at the time it, it faltered a little bit. It wasn't the hit that this film was and that many of their preceding films had been and many of their subsequent films would be. So, yeah, they're, they're calling it the, the Misty Island. And what's happening here... Um, just to just to set the the background of this a little bit, um, you know, we talked about or you were talking about the the look of the film, which I think has a, a beautiful gothic, you know, um, black and white atmosphere, but certainly is so alluring that you you know you you wish to see some of the color of the place, and of course, Powell and Pressburger being famous for their uses of color and their phantasmagoria and so on, mm-hmm. and. What what's going on here is they've 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 made um, the film the 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 Technicolor film the life and death of of Colonel Blimp, also starring Roger Livesey who plays Torquil mm-hmm. in this film. And oddly enough, a little um, random bit of trivia here: uh, Wendy Hiller was set to play um, the was set to play the lead uh, female role in the in Colonel Blimp, mm. but was replaced by Deborah Carr. And then later, Deborah Carr was set to play Joan Webster in this film and was replaced by Wendy Hiller. So some <laughs> nice doing some fun synchronicity there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, they're, they're getting ready to make, uh, Powell and Pressburger, that is, are getting ready to make a film called A Matter of Life and Death, which is going to be the film they make right after this. And they've got that all set. They're ready to go. It's a big, beautiful Technicolor film. And the reason they can't make it is because all the Technicolor stock is on halt with the war. Oh, right. The war is, yeah, we're right in the middle of the war. And so they can't get Technicolor stock from America because, you know, there are bigger problems. And also um, one of the, there were few Technicolor cameras then and Lord Lawrence Olivier, who was the star of the last movie we, uh, the movie we talked about last episode, mm-hmm. uh, Rebecca, he was directing his version of um, was it Richard the Third then? I can't remember, but he had um, the Technicolor cameras. So anyway, they were in a they were in a position where they needed to make a film by their various contracts, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't have the Technicolor uh, technology that they needed to make a matter of life and death, which they were preparing to make. So they started to needed to make something quick in between, and it started is as. as um, well, in his memoirs, Michael Powell writes that Emmerich Pressburger said he'd always wanted to make a film about a girl who wants to go to an island but is delayed by weather, and once the weather clears, she no longer wants to go. Mm. And Powell asked why she wanted to go to the island in the first place, and, quote, Emmerich smiled one of his mysterious smiles, let's make the film and find out, unquote. Huh. So that's sort of the, the seed at, at the beginning of, of this. And I'll say as well, um, I, I want to talk a bit about Paul and Pressburger or the Archers, as they were called, but I'll, I won't do that now. But what I'll say is that um, for Michael Powell, who was an Englishman, Scotland was this mythic place of rejuvenation. He loved it. Between films, he would go to Scotland. He would walk through Scotland. He would. He was steeped in its 
and its lore and its countryside. And it was his sort of his little his little Garden of Eden, his Fortress of Solitude, if you will. It was the place that he would where he would go and he would spend his time uh, to sort of galvanize himself and draw inspiration. And it was a place that was very close to his heart. So and you can see that there's already sort of this um, mythic romantic love from the from the directors of the film toward the place that they uh, romanticize and yeah uh, imbue with magic in in the movie. So all that was my <laughs> interruption to talking about yeah this this journey and well. Actually, I'm I'm just gonna buckle down and keep on interrupting because um, <laughs> hey. because I I just want to bring up again the the train ride that you already alluded to where they the tra where she travels from England into Scotland for her her first time into in Scotland yeah because I think it has this wonderful sort of I mean to me I'm thinking of you know Alice tumbling into Wonderland or as it just happened, I think just uh, just a few years prior to this, in 1939, the the wonderful Wizard of Oz had come out, and the uh. the cyclone that carries her in, and there's something so surreal, and the and the dream that she has as she's on this train, and and you know the we get the reflections of the cellophane around her wedding dress, yeah. causing these illusions and the satire, and and her and the cartoonish, you know, there's use of models it a couple of times in this film yeah. and usually to look realistic but during the train ride we get this cartoonish sort of uh hills that look very much like you know just little uh claymation you know, draped in plaid yeah exactly yeah covered with tartan as she's going through and into this into scotland and she'll and she'll and she will exit the train into this world where one of the first things she has her complicated itinerary you know of how to get from place to place which is um you know, as I was saying, I've I've been to Mole, and it's very much a place where one has to walk and hitchhike and try for the rear bus and take ferries to get around. And she's got this itinerary of how to get get there, and is you know, and right early on there, the wind of Scotland comes and just blows her itinerary away. <laughs> and obviously, yeah, um, you know, she's now sort of falling prey to the Hebrides. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's actually really cool. I I don't know how I didn't make that connection, but yeah, there's this frantic whimsy to her journey to this point that very much feels like the tornado in Wizard of Oz and the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland, where it's she's getting whisked along to this to this magic place, and yeah, the the, the almost the moment she arrives, she's almost immediately out of her element in in every sense of the word. Um, but yeah, I think uh, a a lot of her a lot of her experience on the island is. It's interesting. So they they shot a lot on location, but uh, mm. I I was when I was I was learning a bit about the film, and so you, you were talking about how Deborah Carr was originally meant to play uh, Joan, but uh, Torquil yes. was originally meant to be played by somebody else too, and that was uh, yeah James Mason. And the, apparently, there's some dispute over why he ended up not taking it because originally he was told that he would have to live rough on the islands, and he declined because he was like, I'm not going to do that. So they so they they cast Roger Livesey instead, but the funny thing is Roger Livesey never actually went to the islands either. Yeah, he was he was in the West he was in the show in West End at the time, and he wasn't he wasn't able to be there on the island. So for all the long shots of the island, like all all the shots of him on the island where he's like clearly on location, that's a double. 
And so all the close-up shots were, were filmed in the studio in front of sets and rear projection and things like that, which c- could have fooled me. Yeah, exactly. And you probably saw some of the same material I did where uh, Michael Powell is talking about how he feels like it's one of the trickiest things he ever did in film. I mean, one of the most successful tricks he pulled over in film, I should say. Yeah, he, yeah. He, you know, he said that years later watching it, there were certain shots where he couldn't even quite quite tell. And yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, Roger also, so he, he, he was the star of Colonel Blimp. Oh. Just a couple movies earlier, and he would and he would go on to be one of the stars in A Matter of Life and Death, their next film. Cool. So he had a run, with, you know, he had a relationship with with Powell and Pressburger. But for this film, they felt that he was he was too old. He wanted the part, but they said, uh, you know, he said you're you're too old, too portly. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, no, no, no. And he quickly he quickly dropped uh, fifteen pounds. Wow. And bleached his hair and um. Uh, Michael Powell talks about like he he says it was an extraordinary transformation like the way that Roger was able to just suddenly in the, like the air and the way that he moved and everything just sort of feel like a much younger and more lively person and so yeah he gets the part despite being in a play and the way the way that um, Michael Powell talks about it in his um, in one of his two massive tomes of his autobiography which I have sitting over on my desk. Uh-huh. Uh, is that he? Uh, that it was Roger who said, "No, come on, you you can put me in this part." And he says, "Well, you you're in the play. You can't even come out to the island of Mole." And he says, "You can you can make that work through doubles and so on." He's like, "I know that you can do it." And so he says, <laughs> "Well, all right." And then he does it. Yeah. And it's like you say. I mean, I it, I've seen this film a few times, and it's only because I've been told that I would even think to look, and even even knowing, you know. I, I never there are never any moments where I think, oh, that's clearly not him. It's the it's completely seamless for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's really um, impressive. And Roger did spend time even working with his double. He they, they worked together a lot to get him to move exactly as he moves and so on. Wow. Um, that's terrific. So the yeah, the illusion is um is seamless, I think. Yeah, not even a for its time kind of thing. I think it's by modern standards, that's some fantastic work. Yeah. Um well, uh, yeah, going in a bit, like, yeah, it, it's funny to me that this island is so magic and so beautiful and poor Roger didn't even get to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't even get to be there to experience the shoot. Um, there's, uh, going going a bit more into the cultural side of things, there's a moment um, that I absolutely loved where Joan and uh, Torquil end up at a wedding. Oh, no, it's not a wedding. It's a, it's a celebration of... Of, of a long-lasting marriage. Yeah, a diamond wedding. So what, what is that? A yeah, diamond wedding, the 60th, 60th anniversary. Oh, okay, okay, very nice. So yeah, it's a diamond wedding. Yeah. And they're lucky because this this musical troupe that was meant to be there on Caloran with Joan for her wedding, they're, they're also trapped on this island with Joan. And so they're able to go ahead and, and play this fun little uh, little wedding music for, for, this, for this older couple. And it's... The music and the dancing and the way it's all shot. I suppose we ought to go back now. Oh, no, honey. 
I mean, it felt like you were there and I, congratulations, Bo. I now want to go to, to Scotland because of this movie. Oh, I mean, it's had that effect on many people. And that sequence in particular is, I mean, I've had that since I watched it um, for, you know, a few days ago, since I rewatched it, Mm -hmm. I have had that music just like coursing through me through that, that entire scene, you know, the, the pipes and the, and the singing, you know, the, 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 sing these traditional songs in Scots and in Gaelic. Yeah, yeah. And the whole of it is just, I mean, it's all part of the tapestry, the rich. I mean, that's a moment of tapping into the the mythos, the poetry, the like the rich atmosphere that's like sort of pure Powell and Pressburger mm-hmm. that just really draws you into these, these worlds that they create. Um, even yeah. in this case, you know, the world being a place which exists, but yeah. It, it it's it's magical, and I, I I did notice there like during that sequence, and especially in the beginning of the film, there's a lot of of I don't even know how I would there's a lot of style. It's very it's it's a very very stylized movie that made me think because you've been talking. I mean, you had been talking about Powell and Pressburger for so long. I you know I I assumed they were good, but I wondered what the big deal was. And then watching it, I've only seen a few older films that that do a similar thing where it. It literally feels timeless in its style. It doesn't feel like it's a product of the 40s. It feels like it exists on its own plane of existence, where it was, in my mind, it was kind of like these guys were sort of the Wes Anderson, the Edgar Wright, the, the you know, the pick, pick your favorite stylish auteur director today. These guys were basically that. Like, to the same extent, I feel like you could watch a lot of Wes Anderson films if they had been made in the 40s. The only difference would be slight changes in the quality of the film itself where uh yeah it's just there's the, there's that moment before she has her crazy train dream she's it, it, it's kind of scooting you along at this rapid pace of moving from a to b to z to and she's she's at one of these train stations in between and there's a guy there with a big top hat and the camera just kind of pans in on his hat and then there's this little like a train chimney thing just shoots out the guy's top hat and then transitions into the train for this other thing. There's, yeah. there's so many moments in the movie where I'm watching and I just, I kind of had to like pause it and just be like, they didn't have to do that. Like nobody, nobody, nobody told them to inject this flavor into it. There's so many little moments where I'm like, they just did this at this moment because it was fun and because it was cool and because it was clever and because it gave the whole film a very very distinct flavor, and I'm I'm 100 on board for more Powell and Pressburger. So, if you can find ways to finagle more of them, I'm I'm sure that we're going to, <laughs> and I'm very uh, pleased to to hear your reaction to them. Um, I have that bizarre sense of ownership that one feels for <laughs> uh, things that they that they love and that I have absolutely nothing to do with. Yeah, but. Um, I mean, this was this was going to happen, so I'm just going to go into it, and I'm going to give my quick little gushing sort of 
praise of Paul and Pressburger and yeah. just very briefly state who the heck they even are and yeah, what we're yeah. talking about. So, yeah, uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger uh, became a, a writer-director duo. It's basically seen now as um, Emmerich Pressburger was the screenwriter and Michael Powell was the director, but they were so... Um, enamored with the idea of collaboration. They didn't even like being called Powell and Pressburger. They liked being called the Archers. And the Archers was their little group. It wasn't just them. It was their designer. It was their, you know, it was their whole team that they put together. And they were, they really felt that there was something of synergy and a word that we're going to really overuse, magic. You know, Emmerich said that he would just try and set up these situations to to catch magic. Um, I've got a quote here from Stephanie Zacharach, who was writing for Criterion. She says, to love the films of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, among the most mischievous and inventive of all cinema poets, is to accept that there's more to life than you'd previously imagined, more color, more humor, more ardor, more blissful confusion. I mean, the I could go on and on about the atmosphere that they are able to create with their films. This, these rich tapestries of so many unnecessary nuances that build up in to creating. I mean, this film alone, it's, it doesn't have like um, quirk that's unnecessary as in that it feels like uh, frivolous or out of keeping with the story, Mm -hmm. but it, it adds to this rich depth of, of just things going on. We talked about when we were, when we were discussing Preston Sturgis and segued a little bit into the Coen brothers about how they never waste a side character. Yeah. And Powell and Pressburger have a similar thing, but in their case, it's less like we get these little moments with a side character where they get to be really funny or something. I mean, we have plenty of those, but it's that the atmosphere that they've created and designed is just so rich with living people that you feel like you're being thrown not in, not just into the story of, in this case, uh, Torquil and Joan, but into the story of several people's lives. And this, you know, there's this eagle trainer, this falconer, yeah. and and his thing going on, and we, and there's this something happening with Catriona and her relationship to Torquil and and the land itself, and yeah. You know, and, and Rory and 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 Bridie and all these these people. And there's it, what I think is so extraordinary about what they do is they create with surrealism and imagination these worlds. And this is one of their very most straightforward stories. That's like the most like predictable of their stories, but still um, imbued with this this sense of poetry, but always tempered. With wit, yeah, a little bit like we talked about the way that that um, Hitchcock was always sort of bringing his English wit into his suspense stories. Yeah, yeah, not in a way that was distracting, but in a way that sort of elevates them and gives them uh, something that before things become too, I don't know, too too saccharine or too melodramatic, anything like that. And I think that mm-hmm. Powell and Pressburger did that phenomenally as well. Yeah. Um when they the way that they would weave in uh you know the sort of clever asides and and nuances that that spoke to the intelligence of what they're doing. And I and yeah. I just want to point out for what it's worth that Pressburger 
who wrote the script, was writing in like his third language. I mean, he he grew up in uh, he he was Hungarian. Oh. He goes to Berlin, starts making movies in Berlin. He's a Jew, so that becomes a bad place to be. He flees to France, learns French, starts making movies in France and in French, and then <laughs> things get too hot there, and he ends up in England, and he becomes, uh, you know, and then he, he starts working with Michael Powell, and together they have what Martin Scorsese and others have called like the most subversive period of studio filmmaking that ever happened. They got into the strange position where they were making hits, they were given a budget, they were making films for a studio, but the studio left them alone completely. And they just made a string of extraordinary films from the late 30s um, through the 40s. I mean, it's just one hit after another. If you look at Sight and Sound's top 250 movies, there are six Powell and Pressburger films on there. Wow. I yeah, see I've gone into this largely blind. I I I didn't know a lot about them or their history. I almost want to see a film made about Powell and Pressburger now, although it probably there's no way it would do it justice. That's actually that that's one of the things that I I noticed fairly early on with I know where I'm going, which was it's and who knows, I'm I'm here I am talking about patterns in their filmmaking when I've only seen one film, so you can feel free to correct me, but based on this movie alone, my impression is they they do a phenomenal job of balancing the real and the surreal where i feel that the characters the characters in this movie they they feel real they i feel like i'm friends with all of them by the end of the movie like all the interactions with the falconer whose name escapes me i wish i'd written that one down with with catriona with even rory who at one point like when 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 the gale wipes them out essentially and and uh Tarquil, Joan and Kenny come back and he he sort of just passes out on the floor after uh Rory the original boat guy who was going to take them he he's just like big strong man spits on him and then kind of goes his own way and it's it's interesting because it's like these uh, I I just sorry it's a completely ridiculous trivia to just toss in there but Finlay Curry is a wonderful character actor uh-huh. who, perhaps surprisingly, given his age and everything, goes on to go to Hollywood. And, you know, I mean, he, he becomes a character actor in lots of Hollywood films. And he's really, uh, he did a couple films with Paul and Pressburger, and he's just this wonderful Scottish oak. You know, I mean, <laughs> you just look at him and, you know, he's just one of those people that just his presence, just, just having him on film. You know, it is just says something. He reminded me a bit of another favorite actor of yours, Brendan Gleeson. He kind of gave me a similar vibe. Yeah, yeah. Just weathered and charming. Um, but yeah, it's like these little interactions like him, like him literally spitting on a passed out torque wheel. Like there's these things that it doesn't feel like it's telling you what to think about Rory or torque wheel. It's it's it, this is one of those rare movies I see where I don't feel at all like it's telling me what to think. I I, I feel like they're just they're just painting the picture of this world and these characters and i am here to observe it and at the same time so all these characters feel so real and so relatable some more charming than others some more hardened and grisly than others but all of them intriguing and fun characters and at the same time with how real it feels you've got you've got the closest thing to a literal curse that will yeah. that that this this curse on Torquil McNeil's family that if they enter this castle that this this great what do they call it this great terrible powerful curse or 
the the phrase yeah. they use. It's a it's a bit of a motif that gets repeated whenever they talk about this curse. And I, you know, from what I've heard, it seems like there are other films do something similar where you feel like you may not be watching a literal transpiring of events the way they actually occurred, which is a concept that I didn't even become truly enamored with until, of all things, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which who would have thought that that movie get brought up in an episode like this, where it's the idea that what you're watching may not be what actually happened, but it doesn't matter. Mm. So it's this sense of 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 non-literalism and where it's not even it's not even a question of like is what i'm watching a dream is what i'm watching like told through the perspective of a flawed narrator it's simply what i'm seeing is depicted the way that i imagine it would feel to me if i were there which in its own sense is is fantastical because human experience is subjective you know none of us no, nobody on earth experiences a situation exactly the way it went down. There's always that flavor of 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 being there and of of your own personal sensations. And I think being able to capture that while also having these characters feel like they like they are not being viewed through a subjective lens, you're not being told what to think about any of these characters. I think that's phenomenal. I think uh it was enchanting. No, I'm 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 grateful for the chance that I had to watch this movie, especially as a response to Enola Holmes, which as we've said is a competently made fun flick, but this one was. I'm 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 glad that at least one of the episodes really hit me and stuck with me the way that this one did. So, Bo, here's a question for you: as a fan of Powell and Pressburger, and as a fan of this film, obviously, and having more history with it than I do, who do you think would would get the most out of a movie like this? Because this is, it's a it's a it's a hard movie to pin down uh, for me at least as far as who would really be touched by it. But I feel like it's also for everybody. It's it's true, and I've even had the experience of watching it with, um, well, sort of presenting it to, I'll say, four different people, and I, two of them were pretty lukewarm about it, and two of them, if I count yourself, were pretty enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it it is it is tricky in that way, and my own relationship with Paul and Pressburger. Um, and maybe this is surprising or maybe this is very fitting, is that almost every time with most of their movies, the first time I watched it, I was a little bit um I was like I, I wasn't I was engaged, I was compelled, and I kind of left with a bit of a hmm, that was that was odd, that was interesting. Mm. Hmm. Uh not a very deep or strong reaction. But then um inevitably, over the next few days after watching the film i would just find it was really drawing me in i was i you know i my mind kept going back to it moments of it were replaying for me and i it would just sort of creep up on me that i w- i would find myself being like wow i i really liked that movie mm-hmm. and then i would go back and see it and for me i mean i already knew that i liked this film and watching it this time, which was my third or fourth time, mm-hmm. I found a, a another level of appreciation for this movie that I had forgotten about because it's not, you know, I wouldn't have placed it in my, I mean, Powell and Pressburger are high on my list and I've liked every single one of their films that I've seen to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have put this in my top couple, but now I'm not sure watching it again. I mean, it just enchanted me more thoroughly than it has before. Will it have that effect on people? Well, um, it is a curious mixture of, you know, it's like you say, it's, it's almost not a question of 
well, it feels dated, so maybe if you're not into this or that, it's just that it's it's its own thing. It's yeah. it's Powell and Pressburger, and that's maybe that's a bit of an odd cocktail. And if you have a taste for it, or if you develop the taste for it, then you're going to absolutely enjoy it. But um, if you're not quite there yet, or if it strikes you kind of funny, then maybe their movies will continue to strike you as sort of odd because they are very much a mixture, like you were saying, of surrealism, of imagination, but it's all grounded in this sort of quaint English sensibility yeah, yeah. that makes it uh, something very, very different, unique even in film. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what I'm sort of saying is I really, I don't know, <laughs> but Here's what yeah. I think. I don't know if this film is for you, listener, but I am absolutely confirmed in my uh, firm in my belief that is that you ought to give it a try. Yeah, like watch some Powell and Pressburger. Watch a couple of them. This one's a little bit atypical in that it's um, a little bit more straightforward. It's in black and white. When many of their more famous films are more complex and in color, mm. lavishly in color. But watch a couple of their films and see, because, um, you know, I can it, certainly it's, uh, I mean, Powell and Pressburger are seminal. There are many directors that draw inspiration from them. So you may feel some of those vibes in ways coming from other movies that you love. Uh, it has a sense of magic. Certainly if you've had any desire, you know, if you want to travel, in a, within a movie, you know, if you're to bring up COVID again, you know, if you're sort of <laughs> feeling uh, cabin fever, then this is definitely a film that transports you to another place and, you know, may very well give you a travel destination to plan for as soon as travel opens up again. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Good times. And it's, it's funny, actually, you mentioned, uh, the re the repeat viewing and having it grow on people a bit more because I actually I actually watched this film roughly three and a half to four times before we made this episode because I, wa- I I gave it a, a cold viewing just all the way through once and I had kind of a similar feeling at first where I was like I was like I I knew that I liked it and felt positive about it but I still had all these feelings to work out particularly my feelings toward Joan and whether or not I considered her too selfish to be relatable. And then I, I watched it a few more times. I, I have this habit that most people who know me know this as a character flaw. Uh, I will not disagree um, <laughs> that I tend to uh, have stuff playing in the background while I am drawing, working, doing random stuff just because I, I can't stand the crushing, deafening silence. And so I, uh, <laughs> I I actually I had this playing during work. I had it playing at home while I drew. And it was and it was fantastic for me because the whole movie is about soaking in and and letting it kind of create this atmosphere. And so uh, multiple viewings, I just, I found myself loving it more and more each time I watched it. So by the time we've made this episode, I have, I you know, <laughs> three or four distracted viewings and one non-distracted viewing probably counts for at least, you know, two and a half viewings. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 re- I really, really liked it. So yeah, I, I hope everybody gives it a shot and I hope that, I hope that you guys like it. And if you don't, I hope that it at least affects you and makes you feel feelings because in the end, that's the best thing a movie can do is make you feel feelings. So it's good stuff. I mean, I can't, but I've been, I've been chomping at the bit to, 
to talk about Powell and Pressburger to get a Powell and Pressburger film in there. I mean, we didn't we didn't even talk about Corey uh, Corey Vrecken and the oh my gosh the, the whirlpool sequence yeah, the, and how Michael Powell how Michael Powell filmed footage in the actual whirlpool with himself tied to the himself filming it holding the camera tied to the mast of a ship <laughs> to of the boat Seriously? rather to so that his hands were free as they as they're spinning around and then the way he intercuts that with other footage including some models to create that um that whirlpool sequence yeah i mean it's it's just incredible That's, stuff we have to t- okay so i'm so sorry we, we already gave our concluding thoughts but we have to touch a little bit more on that whirlpool finale because the yeah <laughs> they, they they shoot it they go through this they go through the gale and the gale they they end up in in the whirlpool cory vrecken which i like that was something for me that was on par with Lord of the Rings as far as like, I mean, obviously there are moments where you can tell that there is, you know, a uh, rear projection going on, but <laughs> the rear projection, you've just answered the question for me. I was thinking, how did they get the footage though for that rear projection? Because that is ludicrous. The The waves are yeah. bobbing and flying so high and it's just this intense storm sequence. And yeah, visually just absolutely insane. And you've got this cool... So many, so many cool bits of dialogue. This is the way to fail. Engines boxed out. I gotta take it apart. What can I do? Keep failing and failing. And he runs back to keep working yeah. on the engine. And I love what too when she's she's bailing. He's telling her to bail, and she's like scooping the water out. And he leaves what he's doing at the engine. He comes over, he picks up a pan. And this is all with a lot of intensity. It's not like a hammy little moment. Yeah, it's intense. And he comes over and he grabs it and he starts sloshing out water. And he goes, this is how you bail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. See, and that's like, uh, I love it. This is, this, is, this, was, this is like pure movie cocaine for me because I love... I love moments where you get this action and adventure and, and intensity, and then you still find ways to interject these moments of pure human interaction. Because how many, how many times has somebody been in a situation like that of, yeah, this is how you bail. Like, we are surrounded by water. We are about to die. Like, you're doing it wrong. I'm excited for more. We're going to have to we – may, we may have to retrofit a few streaming originals to get some more Powell and Pressburger into our diet. I'm absolutely – I mean, I've got so much more to say just about – I mean, the story of Powell and Pressburger in itself is so compelling and filled with so many rich notes, especially – this is a teaser for future episodes uh-huh. – especially what happens to Powell and Pressburger toward the end of his career. Uh-huh. Um, there's so many fascinating nuances here and the way it ties in to film history in ways that you wouldn't even expect. And here's a little teaser for – for Chris, Ooh. even ties in to Star Wars. Get out of here! So for real, we're gonna leave. We're we're gonna leave that note. All right. Just sort of hovering in the air, and I'll say that yes, oh, uh, I certainly intend to bring Powell and Pressburger films into this podcast uh, at a at a future date. So. There's one thing we do right with this podcast. It'll be to give proper coverage to all their all their work. Well. <laughs> Well, listeners, thank you for sticking around with us and listening to this episode. It, it's a roller coaster because you know, between Enola Holmes and 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 I know where I'm going. We got I think we got a good coverage of quality, and uh, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to wherever we go next, and I've already got a movie picked out for Bo, so 
stay tuned for there's so much to stay tuned for you guys just keep 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 on <laughs> just just remain in tune remain in tune yeah don't tune uh, keep it uh, keep a keep a tab open <laughs> all right well uh Maybe that's a good closing word. Maybe I should. Just and say, you know, well, 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 while we're here keeping you in tune, you know, why not? Why not tune someone else in? You know, we're a young show. Hey, we could use it. Yeah, spread the word. Tune. If you know friends who, who spread the tune. Spread the tune. Tune, tune it in. Spread it in. <laughs> spread it all about. Okay, this episode has to end now. <laughs>